From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The Supreme Court is set to hear a case that might allow the far-right majority further attacks on the democratic rights of Americans. I speak with anti-war activist and host of the socialist program, Brian Becker. We are now in an accelerated drive by the right wing in the United States to destroy voting rights for big parts of the population. Professor Gerald Horn on who bombed Russia's gas pipelines and why fascists are on the move in Europe. This coming to power of this neo-fascist party is the logical and inevitable outcome of U.S. imperialism's policy. And you could say the same thing with regard to the rise of the neo-fascists in Sweden. And author and editor Vijay Prashad brings down the house in New York. There's something deeply unsettling about how mediocre the leaders of the United States are. I mean, look at Ted Cruz. What is this? Who are these people? All that and more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital for September 30th, 2022. I'm Esther Averam. Well, in recent weeks, catastrophic flooding covered one-third of the entire country of Pakistan and killed more than 1,600 people with the death toll expected to rise. Hurricane Fiona knocked out power to the entire island of Puerto Rico, killing more than a dozen. And now one Florida official told reporters that he fears hundreds could be dead in the state after Hurricane Ian came on land as a Category 4, just shy of a Category 5 storm on Wednesday and left historic damage to coastal areas in the southwest part of the state. As President Biden declared counties in Florida as a major disaster zone, and announced aid for individuals and businesses, Congress passed a temporary spending bill on Thursday to keep the federal government running. And that legislation includes another $12.3 billion in aid to Ukraine, two-thirds of that for weapons and for the U.S. proxy war against Russia. This new aid is on top of $54 billion already sent to Ukraine just this year. In contrast, the spending bill included only $20 million, and that's million with an M, for the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, and $2 billion for a block grant program for natural disasters. Black Lives Matter activist Sean King wrote on Instagram of the disparity, quote, Jackson said it will take $2 billion to solve their water crisis, so the government sent $20 million with an M. It's not okay. End quote, he said. Meanwhile, the Hachaway Project is posting reminders that Hurricane Ian also hit Cuba, which has been the target of an illegal economic blockade by the U.S. for more than 60 years. They're raising money for urgently needed medical supplies in Cuba at HatchawayProject.org forward slash donate. That's H-A-T-U-E-Y project.org. One reason that the federal temporary spending budget passed and the government shutdown was averted is because that controversial bill by Senator Joe Manchin, which would have sped up permitting for fossil fuel projects, was pulled from the package. Manchin was promised a vote on his legislation in exchange for his support for the Inflation Reduction Act. 
environmental justice activists who gathered by the hundreds this month to rally against the proposed law and the Mountain Valley Pipeline rejoiced that for now the bill has been killed, though there are reports that Manchin, with the support of President Biden, is looking for ways to revive it after Congress returns from recess. The Congressional Black Caucus is holding its annual meeting. The gathering is being held amid controversy over a proposed law sponsored by caucus member Representative Jeffrey Meeks of New York, which would target African countries who choose to continue to do business with Russia. Almost all African countries abstained from a U.N. vote that condemned Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. One session of the CBC weekend that isn't the tradition of more progressive black legislators is titled Expose COINTELPRO and Beyond and will discuss solidarity between black and indigenous people who have been targeted by the 1960s FBI spy program and other U.S. state programs of mass surveillance and terrorism. More information about accessing the program is at bit.ly bit period ly forward slash expose COINTELPRO. And for more on this week's international news, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, the writer and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. He is professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and the author of more than 40 books, most recently, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, we'll jump right in and start with Ukraine. This week, despite being bombed by Kiev, several strikes on civilian targets in the Donbass region, Residents of Donbass, Kyrgyzstan, and Zaporozhye regions voted to join Russia in the separate referendum, but the EU and the U.S. have stated that they won't recognize these votes. And thinking back on the conversation I had last week on our media segment, it seems to me that this vote is the latest example of how consumers of corporate media in the U.S. and Europe may not understand why people in those regions would join Russia because they haven't been told about the 2014 coup and how these regions have been bombed by Kiev for the last eight years. And these people have been under siege. Well, that is for sure. And we may be entering a new stage of this conflict because we expect the Russian Duma to vote to accept these regions as part of Russia, in which case any attacks from the Ukrainian regime and their NATO allies will be seen as an attack on Russia itself, which could raise the stakes appreciably. I should also mention that in terms of raising the stakes appreciably, on Wednesday, September 28th of this week, There was a meeting of 40 nations in Western Europe that were plotting more armed supplies to the regime in Ukraine, led by the United States, of course. According to news reports, they're plotting a years-long struggle against Russia. In other words, this is a kind of analog to what unfolded in Afghanistan 
from the 1970s through the 1980s and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And in terms of heightened conflict, I should also mention that this Nord Stream pipeline sending natural gas into Western Europe was apparently sabotaged. Now, after sifting through the available evidence, uh, I would suggest the culprits could be either the United States, recalled that Mr. Biden some months ago made some very negative comments about Nord Stream 2, the companion to Nord Stream 1, or perhaps even more dangerous and provocative, it could be rogue elements within the U.S. national security state that has happened before, or it could be a combination of the United States, the Kiev regime, the Poles, the Baltics, that is to say Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia. And of those three alternatives, I'm not sure which one is more dangerous, but certainly with regard to all three alternatives, they all harbor the means and the motive the motive being striking a blow against Russia in their minds. And also, interestingly enough, uh, going back to the original reason for being of NATO, that is to say, to keep the Germans down and the U.S. in and Russia out, uh, this blow against the pipeline will inflict further harm on the German economy. And let me just mention briefly, there was a remarkable piece in The Economist, the conservative British Weekly, just a week or so ago, where they had the audacity to revive the Morgenthau plan. That was the 1945 plan after the defeat of Nazis, which was to call for the deindustrialization of Germany so Mm. that it could no longer inflict harm on its neighbors. That seems to be unfolding as we speak for whatever motivation or reason. Yeah, and I think that in a recent piece conversation that we included on our show between Eugene Perrier and Brian Becker, Eugene Perrier had done a really excellent piece about the connection of NATO to this conflict in Ukraine. And he recalled the Wolfowitz Doctrine from Mm -hmm. the 1990s and how even in its more sanitized version, it really talked about Europe and Western Europe being a rival. It called for a U.S. hegemony. And the fact that there could be no rival allowed to rise. And Western Europe was included as part of that. (laughs) It wasn't just Russia. It wasn't just China. And so people are looking at that doctrine also. So as we kind of round out our trifecta in Europe, there are a lot of headlines about the rise of fascism in Italy with the election of Giorgia Milani, uh, leader of the fascist Brothers of Italy party. And she's set to become the country's prime minister after her and her her party, uh, along with a far-right coalition, emerged victorious in Sunday's snap election. But I think that you are really looking at the broader picture and say that there are other developments in Europe that we need to pay attention to. And, you know, this is happening as the liberal order, liberal politicians in Europe and in the United States have delivered people to a probable cold winter, a plunging economy. And at the same time, you have the continuing influx into Europe, migration of Africans and Syrians from U.S. wars and attacks in Libya and Syria and places like that. 
Well, I'm afraid to say there's a certain inevitability with regard to the rise of neo-fascism in Europe. It's the predictable outcome of U.S. foreign policy in recent decades, which has conducted a holy war against parties of the left. And like a seesaw, when those parties began to decline, you begin to see the rise of the right. Now, you see that uh, definitely in Italy. Uh, Recall that at the end of World War II, the Communist Party of Italy was one of the strongest communist parties on planet Earth, that in the 1947 elections in Italy, the United States recruited Italian-Americans to contact their relatives in Italy to vote against the communists. Recall as well that in the 1970s, when the Christian Democratic Prime Minister Aldo Moro sought to execute the so-called historic compromise and bring the communists into government, There was at least acquiescence when he was kidnapped and executed, which prevented the communists from coming to power. Now, you cannot go back to the old excuse that Washington was afraid of a Moscow ally coming to power in Rome because the Communist Party of Italy, for better or for worse, pioneered with this so-called Euro-communism, which tried to distance itself from Moscow, but that did not save it from being savaged by U.S. imperialism. And so now we have the rise of this so-called Brothers Party, headed by a woman, ironically enough, who, by the way, uh, has engaged in the kind of anti-African psychosis that would make even the Ku Klux Klan blush. Uh, As you suggested, with the overthrow of the Gaddafi regime in Libya about a decade ago, you had an influx of Africans uh, into Italy. If you look at her Twitter feed, uh, she's been beating the drum about these Africans uh, supposedly uh, being rapists and molesting these European women. Uh, I guess she's consulting her inner Trump. And so this coming to power uh, of this neo-fascist party is the logical and inevitable outcome of U.S. imperialism's policy And you could say the same thing with regard to the rise of the neo-fascists in Sweden. Uh, Recall that it was not so long ago that the social democrats were riding high in the saddle. And then uh, some years ago, you had the assassination of Social Democratic Party uh, Prime Minister Olaf Palma on the streets of Stockholm, apparently with the complicity of the apartheid regime in Pretoria with the wink and a nod from U.S. imperialism and the Social Democrats, even though they've been in and out of power ever since, have hardly recovered. Uh, So once again, the problem rests, I'm afraid to say, in Washington, D.C. Let's switch to our own hemisphere for a second. Anyway, the U.N. General Assembly has been meeting and there have been a number of fiery speeches from the newly elected more leftist leaders in South America, Colombia's, I guess, first ever left-wing president, Gustavo Petro, he delivered a speech declaring that the war on drugs has failed and said that capitalism is destroying the environment with its, quote, addiction to money and oil, end quote, and called for debt relief for the global South. Also, in her first UN speech, Honduras left-wing president, Mora Castro denounced colonialism, neoliberal injustice, and the foreign corporations that have exploited her country. And uh, she, in a clip I want to play, she 
made the link between the historical exploitation of people in her country to the heavy migration from Honduras and other countries in Central and South America. Because many Americans, is, I think it's good for Americans to hear the speech if, if they do hear it, because they don't make the connection between the policies of the U.S., which fomented a coup in 2009 in Honduras, for example, you know, under the administration of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton as uh, Secretary of State. And uh, after that, a veritable narco state was imposed on the country a dictatorship that led to uh, numerous murders, crimes, you know, escalation of narco trafficking and severe destruction of their uh, society. So I want to play a little bit of her, of Ziamor Castro. Then you can respond. I represent the first democratically elected government after our country moved through 13 years of dictatorship. The 2009 coup, which saw us mired in cruel killings and death squadrons, two fraudulent elections, a pandemic, and two hurricanes. It is impossible to understand the Honduran people, men and women, and the huge caravans of migrants without recognising this context of cruel suffering which we have been forced to endure. So that was Yamar Castro speaking before the United Nations General Assembly. And I just thought that, that her words just summarize so much of this period that we're going through right now, where you see this convergence of awareness and conditions of the formerly colonized people subjected over the last 40 years to this neoliberal order that has made their lives so miserable, that's extracted their, their resources and their labor. And then the, the people who have been the traditional beneficiaries of that order in Europe and in the United States also feeling the brunt of the decline of that order. And all of those conditions are bringing us to this point. Well, it reminds me of the unfortunate phrase during the Allende regime in Chile that came to an end, as you know, in 1973 with the coup when the Nixon-Kissinger administration said that they wanted to make the economy scream to create the conditions for that coup. And for decades before 1973 and decades since 1973, U.S. imperialism has been making the economy scream. But fortunately, in that region, you've had, as you know, the resuscitation of left-wing governments, the so-called pink tide, hopefully will be capped by the return to power of Lula da Silva, in the big enchilada, that is to say Brazil, which would be uh, quite a step forward and, of course, would be a defeat for the coup plotters led by the Trump of the tropics, speaking of the incumbent, Mr. Bolsonaro. I guess we should just conclude with, you know, how these happenings in Europe are having an impact on the EU. I mean, this week, the euro has sunk in value. It's just been incredible. And you know, you kind of wonder how long people in Europe are going to allow their economies and their livelihoods to basically suffer, you know, at the feet of U.S. imperialism. 
Well, energy is lifeblood. Western Europe, particularly Germany, was heavily dependent upon cheap energy from Russia and then exporting goods to China. Now U.S. imperialism has ordered that Russia and China should be in the crosshairs. And so Germany, the locomotive of the European Union, will suffer uh, as a direct result. Uh, There is the real possibility of folks in Western Europe freezing in the dark within weeks or within a few months. And in fact, the only beneficiary of this new order that's emerging in Western Europe uh, might be the estate of your homeboy, the late crooner, <laughs> Teddy Pendergrass, uh, who, and his signature song. And now I won't shock your audience by doing my excellent Teddy Pendergrass imitation, uh, but I will say that turn off the lights, light a candle, might become the new anthem of the EU. Well, I don't think we would have minded if you serenaded us, Gerald, but we are running out of time. <laughs> so we might have to wait for the holidays to hear hear your uh, rendition. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Our last speaker, this wonderful evening of solidarity, is someone who often gets described as as a historian and a journalist, but I would like to introduce him as an Indian boxer, (laughs) who often likes to throw punches at the empire. He's been known to be, I would say, quite saucy when it comes to talking about the U.S. imperialism. I'm honored to welcome comrade Vijay Prashad, executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Good evening. Nice to be with you. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Those incredible habits of colonialism, that finger wagging, it's amazing. Joe Biden, Obama, Trump, I forgot, Bush, 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 Clinton, and so on. They seem to go to school somewhere where they learn to wag their finger. They can't talk to us without wagging their finger, telling us how to behave. When I listen to them speak, including Emmanuel Macron 
and Liz Truss. Liz Truss. Even the Queen of England met Liz Truss and died. Within hours of meeting her, she couldn't take it anymore. They seem to have this habit of speaking to us like that. And sometimes when I listen to them speak like that, I feel like that little boy in shorts, infantilized, old colonial habits. Anytime we stand up and say we're people, we're human beings as well. We have plans, we have projects. They say, sit down, sit down, listen to us. Such a pleasure today to listen to our comrades, comrade Carlos, comrade Bruno from the great revolutionary experiments and processes in Venezuela and Cuba. So great. So great to finally listen to world leaders who are adults. So great. So great to listen to our comrades Claudia and Kristen. And you know what? Let me tell you something. When I say that they have this habit of wagging their fingers, I also want to say they're deeply mediocre people. You know, Joe Biden is a deeply mediocre man. There's something deeply unsettling about how mediocre the leaders of the United States are. I mean, look at Ted Cruz. What is this? Who are these people? And in a way, it's the people of the United States that's failing themselves. When you have the possibility of electing Claudia and Kristen to be your president and vice president, instead of that, instead of that, instead of amazing people like this, you send Joe Biden to what they call the White House. When they're the presidents, it'll be called the People's House. The House of White Supremacy. The White Supremacy House. Joe Biden wagging his fingers, telling everybody how to live. Claiming the word democracy for themselves. Who gave them the right to claim the word democracy? Democracy is our word. Who gave them the right to destroy the word human with their propagandic phrase, human rights? Human rights is our word. That's our phrase. They shouldn't sully these words in their mouths. Democracy. What democracy? What democracy? The democracy of money. The democracy of money. Buying elections. Bribing politicians. That's this democracy. How can you claim to be a democracy when you have people who are hungry in your country? How can you claim to be a democracy when you have people who are hungry in your country? How is that a democracy? What kind of perversion makes you say democracy when you allow people to be hungry, when you allow them to have no houses, when you allow them to take refuge in cocaine. And then you go and bomb Colombia.
What gives you the right to use the word democracy? Next year is the 200th anniversary. 200 years. It's the 200th anniversary of the dreaded Monroe Doctrine. 200 years ago, the United States decided that it owns the Americas. And by the way, it was not just a speech made by James Monroe. Shortly thereafter, the United States conducted a war of aggression. Did you hear Biden say the United States never conducted a war of aggression? <laughs> Mediocre. Mediocre. Lying about his own history. I know his history better than him. Mediocre. Unimpressive. Lying about his history. He says, United, just a few decades after the Monroe Doctrine, the United States, in an aggressive war against Mexico, seizes almost half the territory of Mexico. And then they call them California and so on. Occupied Mexico. When is Mexico going to claim that land back? When is that going to be back on the table? And then, coup d'etat after coup d'etat after coup d'etat. From Guatemala to Brazil to Chile, Operation Condor. How many governments have you overthrown today, Joe? How many governments have you overthrown today, Joe? How many illegal, aggressive wars have you sanctioned, Joe? Did you vote to illegally bomb and destroy Iraq, Joe? Did you bomb illegally Libya and destroy that country, Joe? What are you doing today, Joe? Mediocre. Destroying the world and calling that democracy. That is not democracy. That is a perversion of the idea of democracy. The Monroe Doctrine next year, 200 years. When is this country going to grow up? When is this country going to grow up? When is this country going to recognize that it actually is not a country on the hill? Give it up. You're just ordinary people. You're just people. You're just like the Mexicans. You're just like the Cubans. You're just like the Venezuelans. Relax. There's nothing special about the United States. Relax, guys. Relax. Relax. Take it easy. You'll have a lot less stress. Relax. You don't need a Monroe Doctrine. You don't need a global Monroe Doctrine. We don't need global NATO. We don't need US warships in the South China Sea. We don't need that. We don't need any of that. We don't want war. We want peace. Let me tell you something strange that I just learned recently, and I'm embarrassed to say I just learned it recently. I know that the United States spends almost a trillion dollars every year on war making. Almost a trillion dollars. But do you know what the budget of the United Nations is? Do you know what the budget of the United Nations? United Nations is supposed to be an institution, a global institution to build peace. 
The United Nations annual budget, my friends, is $3 billion. $3 billion to build peace, $1 trillion just by the United States to produce war. You can't eat in this country. You can't find a house to live in in this country. You can't go to school and study without going to debt in this country. But you can bomb any country in the world. Well done. Well done, guys. Great. The greatest country in the world is the greatest country, not because there's no hunger in it, but because you can destroy any other country in the world. Well done. Those are your values. The values of a country are not to be measured by its constitution. The values of a country are to be measured by its budget. And the United States spends half its budget trying to destroy the world. It spends half its money trying to destroy the world and then wags the finger and talks about democracy. Do you see how strange this looks from outside the United States? Do you see how weird this is? People look at this and think, who's this guy Biden? This is crazy. He's mediocre. He's wagging his finger. He's telling us about democracy. And right outside my window is a warship that's ready to destroy my family. Bizarre. It's bizarre and uncomfortable and painful. I'm speaking to you on behalf of another process. You see, we don't want to deal with humanity as a security problem, as a problem that requires war, as a problem that requires policing. There are real dilemmas of humanity. Those dilemmas of humanity need to be transcended with a politics of love. Socialism is a politics of love. Socialism is not about hate. It's not about fear. Socialism is about love. These mediocre imperialists fear love. They promote hate. They promote hatred. They don't understand love. They don't understand compassion. They don't know what it means to stay awake every night trying to make sure everybody's got something to eat. They don't understand that. I'm speaking to you from the process called the International People's Assembly. We are about 500 political, social organizations around the world. What we're committed to is expanding our ranks. We want to build our movements. You see, the point for us, and this is where we live by observing, accompanying, amplifying revolutionary developments in Venezuela and Cuba. We amplify, we accompany, we learn from, because we understand the point is not to criticize mediocrity alone. What's the point of being obsessed with them? The real question is, what are we doing? Are we going to the people and saying, look at them, they are so terrible. No, that's not going to lift anybody up. We go to the people and say, this is what we want to do. We want to build. We want to build with love. We want socialism. You see, my friends, 
Many years ago, my great hero, Ho Chi Minh, he's a great hero of mine, and if you clap for him, I'll be really happy. Um, to comrade Ho Chi Minh. Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh, we will fight, we will win. Uh, some Italian communists came to see Ho Chi Minh the year before he died. And as with many people, they came to offer their solidarity with the struggle of the Vietnamese against the imperialist war machine. I know you've experienced this kind of solidarity because people came to Ho Chi Minh and they said, what can we do to help the Vietnamese revolution? That's a sincere question coming from these Italian comrades. They met Ho Chi Minh in Hanoi. And if you know anything about Ho Chi Minh's life, he lived in a very humble hut right through his life. He met people there. He would take out from his pocket. I don't have one here, but he would twirl a cigarette around, you know. And he used to always say, my one concession to US imperialism is I like lucky strikes. Uh, <laughs> so, so very sincerely, these Italian comrades said to him, how do we help the revolution in Vietnam? And Ho Chi Minh, smiling at them, said, go home and make a revolution. Ho Chi Minh said, go home and make a revolution. Comrades, comrades, friends, comrades, listen to me. It's one thing for us to come to our comrades from Venezuela and Cuba and say, we're with you, comrade. La lucha sigue. It's one thing for us to say, we're with you. Chavez vive, Fidel vive. But what are we going to do? It's one thing to say, we stand with you. And it's another thing for you to say, I'm going to get this mediocre shit out of my lives. I'm going to get this mediocre shit out of my lives. You have to build power. We want to win. We are not socialists in order to just criticize. We are socialists because we want to win. And you can win. You can win. You must win. You must win. My friends, socialism, socialism might be love. Socialism might be a process. Socialism might be wise, but it has to also be secured. It's not a choice that comes before us. Rosa Luxemburg said, it's either socialism or barbarism. You know, it's really interesting. Every time an American president takes office, you always think this is the worst it's ever going to be. <laughs> you know, you remember when Reagan was there. Oh my God, it can't get worse than Reagan. And really, I mean, honestly, could it ever have? And then arrives, well, Bush too. And people said, it can't get worse than Bush too. Now, you're going to think in your heads that next comes Trump. It can't get worse than Bush too. And then you get Obama. Wow. <laughs> Every time there's a US president, it seems to get worse and worse. Every time there's a US president, it seems to get worse and worse. 
So when Rosa Luxemburg said many years ago, it's socialism or barbarism, when Trump was the president, I thought, this is it. This is barbarism. The choice has been made. There's no more choice between socialism and barbarism. This is barbarism. But friends, the choice is not made because humans are obstinate and we have to fight and we will fight and we will fight because socialism isn't a choice, Rosa. Socialism is not a choice, Rosa. Socialism is a necessity. Thank you very much. That was author, editor, and activist Vijay Prashad speaking at the People's Summit in New York City on September 24, 2022. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. And I want to take this moment to thank our supporters on Patreon, on PayPal, for supporting the show, for encouraging me. This is a totally independently produced show, and I rely on supporters to continue to do the show. If you rely on the show, if you support the show, you like the show, uh, and you haven't yet joined at Patreon, please go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show and subscribing today for as little as $3 a month. Or you can also give all at once $33 for the whole year. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. And if you're listening to the podcast, there should be a link um, at the bottom of the, the post for the show. We only need two more subscribers to have 50 supporters of the show on Patreon. I'm really excited about that. So please be one of those two people that sign up and make my heart glad. And I know that's not a lot com compared to the thousands of subscribers that other people have on Patreon, but you know, we are thankful for our, our support and we're thankful for you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Everm. And as the Supreme Court begins its session, 
They are set to consider the controversial Moore v. Harper decision. The heart of this case is the so-called independent state legislature theory, which claims that only state legislatures, not state constitutions, courts, election officials, or governors have the right to set election rules. It is this theory that was invoked by Republicans after the 2020 presidential election to declare that the election was stolen from Trump. I discussed more v. Harper and the attack on voting rights with Brian Becker, host of the Socialist Program podcast. We are now in an accelerated drive by the right wing in the United States to destroy voting rights, to undermine, obstruct, subvert, inhibit, or end voting rights for big parts of the population. So I wanted to talk to you This is going to be the first of a multi-part series. There's so much ground to cover. We want to talk about the history of the suppression of voting rights. We want to talk about the Voting Rights Act of 1965, what it was meant to do. We want to talk about the Shelby decision in 2013, where the Supreme Court basically gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But the context of right now, the context of this period, this moment, is in the aftermath of the January 6th attacks, the preparations by the ultra-right to limit or suppress or end democracy or the form of governance or the way government is formed or the way we think of the way the government has been formed. That's all happening. This is happening in real time. So let's get started. Again, we had the Roe v. Wade decision that ended abortion rights for women and anyone needing an abortion, a right that existed ever since Roe v. Wade when the Supreme Court ruled by a seven to two margin in 1973 that abortion was in fact a right. Now we have coming up, the Supreme Court has agreed to numerous other cases that will, again, put democratic rights on the chopping block, including voting rights. So let's get started. Yeah, well, Brian, I think that the decision to reverse Roe emboldened the Supreme Court to look at what they call privacy rights and to question whether these rights that we have taken for granted, you know, that we consider to be part of our democratic rights, to consider whether they are actually rights given to us in the Constitution. So to reverse Roe, some of the justices hinting at other privacy rights, such as same-sex marriage or even birth control for women, laws, decisions that have been put into place either at the time of Roe or after Roe have been put into question. And so voting rights is another right that is under attack, as you said, the court is going to consider a case called Moore v. Harper, and it is very much connected to what's happening with the January 6th committee and is going to take up this case, this issue of the independent state legislature theory, which basically says that only state legislatures, not state courts or constitutions or election commissions and other other people who are doing the work of ensuring only the legislature can make rules regarding how the election should 
take place. And when you look at everything that the committee has brought out in terms of the votes in the 2020 election being challenged, it's all going back to this theory that people in various states, Republicans, people on the far right are putting forward that any types of rules that were put into place to help people vote during the pandemic, help the elderly, the young people, to help particularly people in black and brown communities vote. Well, these attempts to make the election more fair and accessible, they don't count. And so therefore the election was stolen and, you know, Biden didn't win. So this is the argument being put forward. So it's very dangerous. You have a far right court that has already overturned Roe, now taking up more v. Harper. And you have some justices on the court already indicating that they believe in this, what was once considered a very far right fringe theory, giving state legislatures all this power. You know, this is being watched very carefully. It's very dangerous and people are mobilizing to oppose this and figuring out what can happen in the other branches of government, basically to secure people's rights. We have covered on this show how the Democrats failed to pass the For the People Act and other legislation that would have enshrined certain voting rights and taking it out of the purview of the courts, but they didn't do that, even to protect their own voting base. So it's come down to the Supreme Court. Well, Moore versus Harper is this North Carolina case, and the state Supreme Court in North Carolina ruled that the Republican state legislature had gerrymandered the election laws in the congressional districts in such a way that Black people would be essentially disenfranchised largely, and that Republicans would always win. And so the state Supreme Court said, no, go back to the drawing board redo this. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional. So the Republican-led legislature lost that decision. They lost. The state Supreme Court ruled that they had to redraw and redo the gerrymandering because it was so biased. Then the Supreme Court decided to take up the case. In order for the Supreme Court to hear a case, there are thousands of applications for cases to be heard by the Supreme Court. It only takes a fraction of them But in order for it to be accepted, at least four of the nine judges have to accept it. The fact that Moore versus Harper is coming up in the next Supreme Court session means that four of the justices wanted to discuss it. The question is, why did they want to discuss it? Obviously, the only reason to discuss it is to talk about the Republican state legislature argument that not the state Supreme Court, not the state constitution, certainly not the federal government, only the state legislature, according to the electors clause in the constitution, has the right to determine anything about the elections. And so it may be, it may be that this new Supreme Court will uphold the independent state legislature theory or a version of it. And Esther, this goes directly to the basic core arguments that were or the conspiracy that was unleashed by the Trump team after they narrowly lost the Electoral College vote in the 2020 election, which was to come up with alternate slates for electors that would be ratified by state legislatures. And their argument was that only the state legislatures, they and they alone, had the authority, that no one else had the authority to determine how the election outcome was presented, meaning 
the conventional way that electoral college votes are distributed, which is based on who won the majority vote in a particular state, that could be if there was a challenge to who actually did win, the state legislature would determine which slate of electors would be considered valid. And at the same time as this, as you put it, the emboldened right-wing Supreme Court did away with, eviscerated Roe v. Wade, and now feels like they have the wind in their sails. They're taking up this case. And simultaneously, Esther, the Republican Party is on the march to try to reorganize and restructure the entire way the election infrastructure is constructed in the United States. Let's just talk about what they're doing. As a matter of fact, we have an audio clip. This is a recording from October 5th, 2021, of one of a series of Republican Party trainings with activists in Wayne County, Michigan, that was recorded, and then it was obtained by Politico. You'll hear Matthew Seyfried, the RNC, Republican National Committee's Election Integrity Director for Michigan, talking to this group of Republican Party volunteers, organizers, and operatives. Let's listen to the clip. It's about 25 seconds. Then I want to get your reactions to how the Supreme Court decision plays in with this attempt to sort of reorganize the way the election infrastructure actually looks in the United States. We are trying to recruit, truly, it's going to be an army, right? We are going to try to recruit lawyers. We're going to have more lawyers than have ever been recruited, because let's be honest, that's where it's going to be fought, right? We're going to have lawyers that work early to build relationships with different judges, so that when that happens, we're going to have lawyers that have relationships with the police chiefs in the different areas, with the police officers in the different areas, so that when that happens, those pre-existing relationships are already established. So, Esther, I hope people can make out the hearing, but he's basically saying we're going to create an army of lawyers and organizers who will develop relations with local police departments so that whatever happens locally, they're going to be in charge. Wow. This is really goes hand in hand with what was attempted in the 2020 election. You know, here in D.C., we had just in terms of political intimidation and political violence, you know, or the threat of it, you know, to make people intimidated. So maybe that they don't vote or they don't come out to vote at all or these officials in the aftermath can say who can vote and what votes will be tossed out. So this is very important. You connected it to what has been happening with the January 6th committee and all of this intimidation, these threats of violence, that's what's kind of come out in some part during the January 6th committee. And I thought about it when we were talking about doing the show The idea to empower the state legislatures, it goes back to the beginning of Trump's slow motion coup. And we talked a little bit about it on the show in terms of very early on going after all the ways that officials are trying to make it easier for people to vote during the pandemic. Right. So we had a big ramp up in mail in ballots. 
developing ways for people to vote by mail, voting drop boxes, drive-through voting. I remember hearing about drive-through voting in Texas, especially in Houston, in a very large urban area. Having other people be able to drop your ballot off for you if you are disabled, you are elderly. Early voting, you know, souls to the polls, which has been a really successful way for Black people to vote and not only to vote, but to protect themselves, you know, to go in groups, to maybe defy these types of efforts to have police or the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers or other people like that around polls to intimidate people and also to have more convenient voting locations. So these are the types of rules put into place by, you know, perhaps election commissions, officials whose job it is to facilitate the vote. These are the types of laws that these various state legislatures controlled by Republicans. These are the types of laws that they tried to strike down. And they tried to say that, okay, if the state legislature did not put this into place or they opposed it, then it cannot exist legally. And these votes cannot exist legally. And, you know, there was some way of kind of casting this as a political maneuver. The Democrats were just trying to bring out their base. But even if it was, there's supposed to be a right to vote. And the idea that Republicans, the far right throughout this country, not only schemed to do this in 2020, but is ramping up the effort in the election later this year and in 2024 is alarming. And there's just not concerted effort effort by the Democrats, which is supposed to be the political opposition, to do something about this. And so, you know, I think we as the people have to be aware of it and be prepared to fight back. And that's it for today's show. I will link to part two of the discussion with Brian Becker at onthegroundshow.org. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. Our website and archive of all our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Patreon.com at On the Ground Show. I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Ivarum. I-V-E-R-E-M. The music we play this hour included You Gotta Have Freedom by the late, great Farrell Sanders, who joined the ancestors on September 24th at the age of 81. Also, Gangsta's Paradise by the rapper Coolio, who was born artist Leon Ivey Jr. and died September 27th at the age of 59. Our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.